welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Morning. It's good to, uh, to be with you on this uh, Epiphany Sunday morning. Now, for those of you who grew up in mainline churches or Catholic churches, you recognize that this is the Sunday that we celebrate the dawning of the light to the three wise guys and their journey uh, to Bethlehem. And we celebrate their arrival two years after Jesus's birth as they came to the place where the young child was and uh, brought their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, leading to the illusion that there were only three of them. In fact, there were, we don't know how many there were. We just know that they brought three gifts. Um, and then, of course, uh, that got contemporized a few uh, centuries later with the appearance of a little drummer boy who had no gift to bring, gold, frankincense, or myrrh, so he played his song for him. And ox and lamb kept time. Apparently, they were there by that time, and on and on. Let's go. So that's this Sunday, that's today that we celebrate that. And I, 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 it occurred to me as I was preparing for this Sunday morning that that is an appropriate um, uh, kind, of, kind of image for us. Epiphany Sunday, the dawning of the light, uh, the appearance of the star um, that we are invited to join in on. This is kind of part two of the word, the sermon from last week, in which we just talked about um, the, the, the um, kind of the invitation, I suppose, uh, that, that is given to us uh, in, in the text of Scripture to be the people of God, to, to consider what it means to learn how to tell time in an age in which it feels like all of the all of the uh, markers, all of the things that we have counted on uh, over the years are being uh, uh, seemingly fragmenting around us. Uh, the code word that Paul uses to gather that up in Ephesians chapter 5 there is that the days are evil. The days are chaotic. The days are dark. The days are difficult and confusing. And Uh, I have to tell you, the first week of 2019 hasn't indicated that there's any change in that diagnostic, that we are are in for some challenging times. Would that be fair to say, right? You you get motion sickness watching the Dow Jones average move move through the iterations, right? Uh, uh, Some dear, dear friends of mine uh, lost their second uh, son or their youngest son, rather, having uh, been hit in a, uh, on his bicycle. Um, and uh, a dear friend uh, who's championed children's ministry for decades passed away this week. And on and on the list goes. It's not uncommon, is it? More people die November, December, January than combined any other time of the year. Um, we are in evil days. We are in dark days. We are in difficult days. A lot of folks who just hung on for the holidays have now decided to cash in their chips. Uh, How do we, as the people of God, learning how now to tell time, how do we live in that environment? I mean, you've been watching the news with the partial government shutdown and 
the rhetoric that is, 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 is bombasting the Twittersphere is, is leading me to think that we're probably in for another couple of years of just crazy on crazy, regardless of what side of the crazy you're on, yeah? And if there's anything that ought to convince the people of God, our hope is not in politics. So what's our hope in? What's our alternative? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is, Christ is our cornerstone. So what does that then mean for those of us who are Republican, for those of us who are Democrat, for those of us who are praying that Bernie stays alive for another run? You know, I mean, it's, come, it's just... It's just, it's just craziness to think that our hope is found in any, in, uh, any of these other things, right? So what do we do? Do we just kind of wring our hands in futility? No, we do what Jesus told us to do in the beginning. We get in the game. We, we are, the world is not, America is not going to become great again. I'm sorry. It never was. When the kingdom of God comes, America's going to go down just like every other kingdom. Sorry if that's news, but we need to be aware that Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the president of all presidents. Every knee will bow, oval office or not. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Now, y'all, we know that. So why don't we play the game with that awareness and stop investing in things that have no hope of making a lifetime change in the world that we live in? That's part two, which is today. We begin uh, by looking at a passage of scripture that Jesus um, kind of launches his ministry with. Uh, and that we've referred to, in fact, uh, I, I, would, I would argue that of all of the passages, all of the texts that we've looked at, this one has been kind of woven into the fabric, the DNA of the garden uh, since inception, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. And particularly, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses um, uh, 13 through 16 in a minute. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, is kind of um, Jesus' invitation to his followers to uh, become aware that something brand new is occurring. Uh, that, that, that it is that something, something significant is shifting in the stratosphere. That, that when the kingdom comes, uh, everything goes back to zero. Everything starts over again. All of the systems of evaluation are no longer relevant when the kingdom of God comes. So for those who were counting on God's kingdom coming to leverage their advantage, they're going to be disappointed. For those who are counting on uh, the kingdom of God coming so that, so that their piece of the pie is preserved and, 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 and magnified, they're going to be disappointed because when God's kingdom comes, your kingdom goes down just like everybody else's kingdom. Everybody okay? So far, as long as I'm meddling, we might as well just get into it here. Um, so, so he begins this sermon, as you know, with what we call the Beatitudes, which are a, a short list, uh, eight or nine or ten different 
um, um, uh, kind of categories of people, many of whom uh, we would consider to have been excluded from the kingdom, excluded from the blessing of God because they're what was happening in their lives is an indicator that clearly God is not, they're grieving. So clearly they've lost catastrophically someone dear to them. They're mourning. They are, are pure-minded. They're simple-minded. So, so, so we clearly have indicator that they are not necessarily then among the blessed of God, right? We still do the same evaluations of who's in and who's out, who's blessed and who's not, that that culture did today. And so it's alarming to us to discover when Jesus says, as he does, no matter how low you go in the culture's evaluation of your condition, you're in. The kingdom is available for you. Those who mourn will be comforted, but they're in, right? Those who are pure in heart will, at the end of the day, see God, right? They're not highly valued in our culture, in our world, even though we have found Christian ways to snap those things into alignment. Then, in fact, in the first century, they're not conditions. They're not uh, marks of persons who are blessed. Blessed are those with Down's syndrome. They're the ones who see God. You don't have to have Down syndrome to see God. But that syndrome, if you will, does, is not a barrier in our cult any more than it was. Is everybody tracking with me? Blessed are those who grieve, who are mourning. Well, you don't have to mourn to be comforted. But if you mourn, if you've suffered loss... If you've suffered catastrophic loss, not just of loved ones, of persons, but of dreams, of hopes, of ambitions, of things that you had hoped by this time would have occurred, right? And here you are at the, at the beginning of a new year and still nothing. Blessed are you who mourn, who grieve. You're in. You'll be comforted, not always by the restoration of what you've lost, but by the presence of God who is with you in the loss. Do, do you see what he's doing here? He's taking the, the bar of entry to the kingdom of God. The standard that you have to get to to get in and putting it on the ground. Anybody's in. You can get in. No matter what conditions you now what, what please notice what this will mean is that many of us will be playing hurt many of us will bring our pain our disappointment our frustration our wounds as the primary gift we bring to the kingdom that's really important because sometimes we think that the kingdom needs my gifts well, what if it needs your brokenness? The kingdom needs the benefits I bring, my talents, whatever it is. Well, yeah, the kingdom can take, make use of that. But please notice, what if it's not that? What if it's your disappointment that the kingdom needs? What if it's the fact that you haven't been healed that the kingdom needs? Are you okay with that? Now, the reason I ask that question is because it's not your kingdom. It's his kingdom. 
And when his kingdom comes, yours goes down, same as mine. Do you know? And we'll talk about why that is in just a minute, why he might take advantage of those, if, if I can use that language carefully, of those who are grieving. And the reason is very simple. There are other people in the world that you live in who are grieving. How else are they going to discover the kingdom of God in their grief unless they have somebody like you grieving in Jesus' name? Do you see what he's up to here? The kingdom doesn't come by legislation. The kingdom comes by presence. So now that you're in, now that the bar of access, if you will, has been laid on the ground, what is expected of citizens of the kingdom? What is expected of people who he is invited in? What is expected of those of us who struggle every day battling back the darkness to get out of bed and go to work in the morning because we're battling with clinical depression? What does it mean for those folks? Battling with mental illnesses, battling with kids who have gone sideways, battling with, with tension in between friends and roommates and co-workers. What does that mean? Bars on the, you don't have to get all that stuff straightened out to get in. Now notice what he then says to those folks. Guys, he says, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. Now, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You guys, you losers, you who no one else would give space and grace to, you guys, you're the light of the world. You're a town that is built on a hill and it cannot be hidden. So people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way then, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in the heavens. Here's the strategy. Know who you are, and then get to work. It's, it's simple, because the kingdom is not going to come through legislation. It's not going to come through systemic change. It's going to come through individuals penetrating a culture and changing it from the inside out. Listen to the images. You are the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, this would be clearly understood. For us, salt is primarily a flavor enhancer, and it functions in that way. It brings out the flavors of foods, and it's wonderful. I, I get that. But in that ancient Near Eastern world, salt was way too precious simply to be viewed as a condiment at the table. It was, in fact, primarily about two things. One is, in a country, in a world before refrigeration, salt was a primary means of preserving food. Preserving food. And, second, it was because of its value, because of its um, costliness, it was a sign of a promise made, a covenant. So often uh, in, in our culture, we'll sign pieces of paper as indicators of our willingness to keep our promises. 
In that ancient Near Eastern culture, somebody would be given a bag of salt as a mark of covenant. And Jesus says to us, what are you guys? You're the salt of the earth. You are in charge of the preservation of this place. And secondly, you are God's promise that he hasn't forgotten the world. You are God's covenant marker. You are given by God to the world as an indicator that he is on the move to redeem, to restore, to save, to reconcile. That's a pretty big deal for those of us who are loved losers. That's a pretty big deal for those of us who are playing hurt. That's a big deal for those of us who bring our pain as a primary condition of our usefulness. Do you see what he's saying? You guys, we got stuff to, and by the way, I, I, you've probably figured this out, but salt does not preserve anything if it's maintained in a salt shaker. It has to be in the substance it seeks to preserve and absorbed into that culture. Anybody else despairing at the way the world seems to be rotting from the inside out? Guess who's responsible for that? We are. Because it's our job to be absorbed into art, to be absorbed into politics, to be absorbed into the uh, theater, into the news media, into the fill-in-the-blanks, to be absorbed into those places, not to be retreating from them, not to be standing on our high holy mountain and shaking our finger of judgment at, but to be absorbed into those environments and changing them, preserving them, working on them from the inside out. Genius, strategy. Because as long as it's legislation, people can vote against it. But if it's absorption, what can you do? It's too late by the time you notice that you have been absorbed into righteousness without even knowing it. You've been influenced by goodness. Dallas Willard, uh, my uh, mentor in my doctoral program, was once asked, how do, you, how do you get a Christian influence into the boardrooms of America? That's a great question. His answer was typically Dallas. You get a Christian, you have him walk into the boardroom and sit down. That's how you do it. You get somebody who knows what she or he is about, knows who he or she is, beloved, beautiful, precious, chosen son, daughter of God, has then grown up enough that God can trust in the boardrooms of America. You want Christian influence in politics? Get elected. But don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose the preservation. Don't use the thing that makes you be in the world, but not of the world. Michael Horton has said the church, rather than being in the world and not of it, has found a way to be of the world, but not in it. That's terrifying. Right? So here we are. Do we, do we need, do we need uh, salt in, um, 
in, in, in business? Do we need salt? Do we need preservation in the school systems? Do we need preservation? Not, not for the sake of political militancy and take back our whatever. That's, that's not going to work. We're no better in charge than anybody else is. We're not better with power than anybody else is. That's why Jesus says, I'm not trusting you with this. What I want you to do with your power is not rule over everybody, but serve everybody. You see the strategy, it's genius, which is why we've largely ignored it, because we think we know better. <laughs> we are sons of Adam, forgetting that we're actually sons and daughters of God. So we employ Adam's strategies of power that dominates, rather than the image of God's strategy, which is power that empowers, that elevates, that lifts. You want to change the world? You want 2020 to be different than 2019? Be absorbed into your world. Don't lose your saltiness. Because then you won't be useful. You might as well just be thrown out. Right? Be, be the promise that God hasn't forgotten the world. Because there's a lot of folks that look around at the disasters that are occurring. Would it be fair to say and say, where's God in the middle of this mess? And the answer, of course, is he's in the middle of the mess. Where are you? Standing off and looking and wondering. God's engaged. God's involved. That's what incarnation is about. Jesus, as I mentioned last week, didn't come to the palace. He came to the, to the, to the blue-collar worker. Candidly, we need, we need salt and light in, in the tech industry. Right? Would that be fair to say? You can't, I can't think of a single area of culture and society where we don't need people who have been absorbed into the very fabric and texture of that particular culture. And can say to the Folks who are working the algorithms undermining our privacy. Bring it on. I got nothing to hide. That's the beauty of saltiness. <laughs> Lift the covers. We're good to go here. Nothing to see here. Move on. Do, do, do you see? It's, it's genius. Jesus is so stinking smart when it comes to saving the world. I think we should make him king. <laughs> Just saying. So salt that is focused on preservation through absorption, pushing back the rot that is inevitable. Salt that is God's promise of continuing presence. And sometimes all it is is an inert presence there are times when you sit with people in seasons of pain that the smartest thing you can say is nothing. Let your voice be your life present in their pain. Let them see the tears that you shed with and for them. Not some Christian ease, everything happens for a purpose. That's, by the way, not true. Sorry. 
<laughs> okay, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. God doesn't say, well, at the end of the day, what God, God says is, I'm going to work purpose out of things, but there's no purpose in the death of an infant. I can redeem it, but I didn't make it happen. No purpose to that. There's no purpose in poverty. There's no purpose in famine. But there is purpose coming out of it. There is purpose coming out of brokenness. It didn't happen for a purpose, but now that it happened, let's leverage it to the glory of God. That's why presence is so critical. That's why preservation is so important. When people are in the middle of whatever the mess is that life has handed them, they need somebody who is stable and solid, who knows which way is down and which way is up to enable them to maintain a place of stability and safety. They need you in their lives. Right? They need a sign that God hasn't abandoned them even though they feel that God has abandoned them. And then he says, you guys, you're, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You complain about the darkness all you want, but let your little light shine. If there's darkness in the world, is that a surprise to you? Why, why, do, why, why, when we read of this, why do we celebrate the spread of darkness through gossip and tabloids? Why do we do that? Let your light shine. There are things that I just don't need to know about fill in the blanks. I just don't need to keep up with them. See what I did there. Paul is clear. He says, look, folks, stuff happens behind closed doors that you don't want to know about. It's not your business. And especially because, referenced last week, it's distracting from what we're really about, right? I mean, and, and candidly, as long as somebody else's life is a mess, I can feel pretty good about mine. That's not the point, <laughs> right? I want to. I want to. I want to. I. I. I want to be in the middle of my brokenness, in the middle of my stuff, including my successes. By the way, please notice Jesus doesn't disqualify you because you bring stuff to the table. It's not that the stuff you bring to the table is what qualifies you. Do, do you know? Bring your gifts. Sure, we'll find a place for them, but you're not in because you got the gifts. Do, do, do you see? So, so he says the light is uh, of, of the world, and, and the function of these two things is basically he combines these two images. Did you catch this? You're the light of the world. First of all, a town on a hill, and then a light in a home. Two different images and two different um, uh, uh, ideas that he's after. The idea of the town on the hill, uh, I think, is, is an idea, of, and, and, and we've used this uh, at, at various times here before, but it's the image of... Uh, I think of, 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 a, of a pilgrim traveler, a wise man, uh, uh, the Magi, uh, folks driving across a, a lonely, deserted landscape, right? And, 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 and uh, uh, heading towards 
home. And as you crest a hill, what do you see off in the distance? You see the illumination of the sky, the light of home bouncing off the clouds, and it beckons you in, it draws you in, it gives you a sense that there is a destination in the darkness. I remember driving uh, with my family, my, my, my mom and dad both were born and raised in a little town called Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, and we lived in Calgary about 150 or so, 130 miles north of, of Lethbridge. So we would go down on the weekends, uh, mom and dad pick us up from school and head down Friday and spend the weekend and then drive home Sunday night. And I, there, there's this particular part of the ride, and I mean, this is 60 years ago now for me, right? But there's a particular part of the ride as you come up over the hill that you can see the lights of the city of Calgary in the distance. And as soon as we saw those lights, we knew we were home. We knew we were home. That's you guys. This world, in the darkness that it is in, needs a reminder that there is a home to which it is going, that there is a heaven to which it is being drawn, that there is an eternality to its life that it's being drawn to. Guess who is the promise of that life? We are. We are. We're the ones that hold out the deep reality that this world isn't all there is. That's how, how we deal with grief and death, for example, in ways that are different. We don't grieve as if we had no hope. We grieve. We deal with catastrophic loss, but not as if it were the definer of anything final. We grieve with hope. We grieve with a forward look. We are in the dark, but every once in a while we crest the hill and we see the lights of home. We've been hungry for home ever since we got kicked out in Genesis 3. Remember? You remember? We've been longing for home. In fact, I would argue that almost every single one of the desires of our heart, both pure and impure, are at their root a manifestation of a hunger for home. For home. We found ways to catastrophize. No, that's not the right word. Yeah, that sounds gooder. <laughs> we found ways to, to pervert our desires so they lead us to damage and destruction and into the ditch. But at the end of the day, the deep desire is still a longing. When I'm walking with guys, men and women, out of pornography, for example, one of the things that we often do is shame ourselves because of sexual desire. Don't do that. Don't do that. That longing for deep, intimate connection that can certainly be perverted and broken and damaged as it has in unspeakable ways. At the core of that, though, Song of Solomon, is a hunger for home. It's a longing for connection. It's a desire to be known intimately by someone. That's not illegitimate. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be channeled. It needs to be focused. Let's be clear. But it's not wrong. Don't pray for it to go away. Do you, do you see? So, so, so this, this longing, this desire, this 
cresting of the hill in the darkness, guess who illuminates the... Now, please notice, the second thing is that the light shines in the lampstand. It, it, it shows that there is a better way, another way to live. Not as a finger-shaking condemnation, y'all better get your act together, but a let my life vibrate, let my life glow with the better. Do you, do, you, do you see? Jesus is clear later on. He says, don't y'all be judging people because they got stuff in their eye. Of course they have stuff in their eye. That's not the issue. The issue is the log in yours prohibits you from helping them. And what's the log in our eye? Judging them, condemning them because they have stuff in their eye. So get rid of the condemnation, get rid of the judgment, then you can actually be helpful in the things that are prohibiting people from seeing with clarity and precision. Jesus is really smart on this stuff, folks. So he invites us into this dynamic. Let your light shine, illumine, vibrate with goodness, not in judgment. With life from above. So in a nutshell, we need to be holy. Salt that loses its saltiness has lost its distinctive character that enables it to be useful. Light that is hidden has lost its distinctive character, character that enables it to be comforting and illuminating. The catchphrase for this is holiness or righteousness. In a nutshell, holiness is not specialness, it's usefulness. This is why the Beatitudes at the beginning are so important. It's not about getting in or not. You don't get in because you're holy. You're in because he says you're in. Now, be holy. Because we got stuff to do. Right? We, we, we got work. The, the, the world doesn't need another example of fragmenting pieces without hope and help. So it's time for us, it's time for us to grow up. Can I be real honest? It's time for us to stop being the children of God and start being the adult sons and daughters of God. If I can use that language without being misunderstood. He's looking for warriors. He's looking for soldiers. He's looking for folks who will, who will say, Coach, put me in. I'm ready. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? This is, this is why, by the way, the rest of the sermon is saying, don't blow yourselves up with lust. Don't blow yourselves up with failure to keep promises. By the way, did you notice the first thing he starts off with in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? You don't get to be angry at people. What? That eliminates half my posts on Facebook. <laughs> you don't get to treat people with contempt. You don't get to believe that persons are fools. Wouldn't that eliminate most of our political commentary these days? If you're going to be, if, if you're going to be salt and light, you don't get to play the game by the same rules that everybody else does. You don't get to be right at the expense of salt and light. Like Dallas said, it's hard to be right and not hurt people with it. 
So the strategy here as we walk through this, the rest of this list of truth-telling and integrity and, 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 and how we treat people who regard themselves as our enemies so that we are identified as children of our Father, this is all about fulfilling our salt and light mandate. Holiness is useful. Now, please notice, this is not about condemnation. If you're struggling in some of these areas, as I am, it's like, okay, this is a year I need to start to take myself a bit more seriously here. Can I suggest to you one little tweak that might be helpful? Stop working so hard to avoid sin and start working harder to avoid temptation, to avoid the gateway. Don't play at the edge of the cliff as furiously as you can in the hopes that you won't fall over. Get back from the edge of the cliff. Okay. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.